Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Social Justice Matters, the podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Suzanne Rogers and I'm Research and Policy Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. If you're tuning in regularly, you'll know that our podcasts come in three different formats. We have our 10-minute lesson series, which does exactly that, takes a policy topic and just looks at the key points that we think are really important within that sort of 8 to 10, 12 minutes time frame. We have our seminar series where we get the chance to listen back to presentations we've had at previous events. And then we have our interview series where we get to chat to policy experts again on a really wide range of topics. So this week, it's one of our interviews, and I'm delighted to have been joined by Anne Mara, who's Education Manager, and J.P. O'Sullivan, who's Networks and Communication Manager with MECPATS. MECPATS is the only non-profit organisation in Ireland which focuses specifically on the issue of child trafficking. We chat about the, I suppose, the issue of child trafficking in Ireland, how we currently understand it, and really how our understanding and language maybe needs to shift and what supports must be put in place. We hope you enjoy. There is a link in the notes to the podcast that JP references, witness in his own words. I just need to point out again that this does carry the following warning, that in that particular podcast, there are references throughout it to violence, sexual abuse and suicidal thoughts. I just need to make sure that's very clear before anybody does start to listen to it. I will ask the first question, I suppose, which is where we always start. I don't know who wants to take this. What and who are MECPATS? And maybe you might go yeah. for this. Yeah, I'll take that. MECPATS was founded in 2013 as a response to the growing issue of child trafficking in this country. And it initially started with the training of staff and management working within the hospitality industry in particular. So looking at the hospitality industry as a venue or places that provide a certain amount of privacy and anonymity and can be used for the trafficking of children and for sexual exploitation on those premises. So the project initially started out uh, providing education, raising awareness with that particular industry. And it soon grew because of the many requests we had for training. So really our day-to-day work, Suzanne, is providing awareness raising training um, to frontline professionals working in various industries across the country, but also providing workshops and uh, training to emerging professionals. So the likes of social work students um, at master's level in all of the social work programs across the country. And um, that's really encouraging for us to kind of get in front of those types of um, emerging professionals because they get to have the whole issue of child trafficking on their radar before they go into uh, their professional careers. JP, then I might begin with the reverse question I think most of us probably have a preconceived idea of what trafficking is. What is it not that might be the place to start? Because I think I think we have it wrong in our heads. Okay, that's a very good question, Suzanne. So I'm supposed to answer what it what it's not. It's not primarily focused on international movement. It's not all about the other. It's not about other countries. It's not about other communities or other children or other adults. It's for us in MECPATS, it's about Irish nationals and nationals of other origin being moved around Ireland for the purpose of exploitation. So we don't necessarily preoccupy ourselves with that entry point into to Ireland, Suzanne. We occupy ourselves with what's embedded in legislation 
and that is the trading and exploitation of children and adults for benefit. What we look at when we look at definitions in Ireland is we look at Irish national children being recruited, transported, transferred, harboured or received for the purpose of some type of exploitation. And the types of exploitation that we see very much alive in Ireland are sexual exploitation, labour exploitation, criminal exploitation, forced marriage and domestic servitude and organ harvesting. So it's not just about something that happens elsewhere. It's about something that happens here in Ireland. But it's, it's not people smuggling. It's not. No. I think a lot of us have this preconceived idea of that. Yeah, and smuggling and trafficking are two very different things, Suzanne. Smuggling is regarded within legislation as a crime against the state, whereas trafficking is regarded as a crime against the individual. The focus of your work is is just on children. So I suppose maybe for the, for the rest of the conversation, we might just concentrate on children. So we talk about 18 and under. Is that what we mean by children? Yeah, so 17 and 364 days. Okay. Yeah. I mean, and we were both at an event recently and I found the official stats that they talked about at that particular event quite confusing. So there was lots of talks about non-Irish national gangs um, and as you said, into that international space. But then one of the statistics that was shared with us at the time was that 94% of the children who were identified as victims of trafficking in Ireland had a familial link. So I'm kind of thinking if, if we're looking in the wrong place, we'll never find it. Yeah, I might speak to that, Suzanne, because yeah. um, I, I on the day I was there, the 94% familial connection is specifically to do with the uh, criminal exploit uh, the the criminal exploitation of children. So um, when it comes to that particular cohort of child trafficking victims, we do see a very strong familial connection. Um, I think, you know, the the talk about the international gangs being involved, I think that's very much confined to children who are being trafficked into Ireland from other countries. It's not to say that that doesn't happen. It absolutely does. But I suppose when we're focused on just the international aspect of child trafficking, we miss completely the potential victims of trafficking um, amongst Irish nationals and EU national children living in this country. So I think there is uh, ambiguity and there is sometimes a lot of confusion. And um, I think when you when you take a statistic and then you're, you know, you're, you're confused about its application, that's where the confusion arises for people. Is there a gendered aspect to it? Because I suppose what you've highlighted there is the criminal versus maybe the sexual exploitation. So what are you seeing in that space? Well, in the higher income countries like Ireland, the majority of child victims that are trafficked for sexual exploitation are female. Um, and that's a statistic that is echoed and reflected across global trends also. And um, when it comes to the criminal exploitation of children, that is mostly uh, males. So if we look at the trafficking statistics from the UK, every year the UK is identifying thousands of children who are victims of trafficking. The majority of those victims are British national children who have been trafficked for the purposes of criminal exploitation, and they are mostly male children. Okay. And I thought this is where the language really comes in. So 
if we are aware that we have young Irish boys involved in selling drugs, involved in intimidation, maybe I'll, I'll just take the, the, the drug space. That's something we don't think of as trafficking, really, isn't it? So we just think of that as young young boys involved in organised crime. Absolutely, Suzanne, and we tend to to use the language of offenders. Yeah. Um, but we miss the victimhood piece. Like, I mean, to, to put into context, I suppose, you know, when we are out there and we're training people and we're working with communities and organisations and they're telling us that they're working with children as young as six who are involved in criminal worlds. I mean, personally, I don't think that any six-year-old wakes up in the morning and decides that they're going to be involved in criminality. They've clearly been groomed for that purpose and brought into it through worlds of trafficking. We have worked with communities in North Inner City, Dublin. We've worked in communities around Dublin. We've worked with communities all over the country. And this issue, this this concern, this trafficking is not unique to, to Dublin City, not unique to the capital. What we're hearing in Dublin, we're hearing down in Kerry, we're hearing it in Cork, we're hearing it across in Galway and through Cavan. It's the same thing that's being replicated. It's the vulnerability of young people, of children, that's being identified by not just criminal gangs, but by individuals around communities, and that vulnerability is being exploited. And they are being trafficked. When we look at legislation, it is clearly trafficking. The challenge that we have, Suzanne, is around the use of language. And mm-hmm. um, we're very, very focused on, I suppose, responding to the presenting behaviour and not taking the time to look at what's underlying or what's caused or brought that young person into this world. We had opportunity during um, one of the lockdowns to be in conversation with a young with a young professional who's working in, happens to be in West Dublin with three young lads who were, at the time we were speaking to her, 17 years of age. And he was working with three young lads who, when they were 11 and 12 in their own community, were given a spliff to smoke by somebody they knew. And they took it and they smoked it. And that person came back and said, actually, you owe us money for that. And at 11 or 12 years of age in already an economically challenged area, they didn't have the money to give. So they started working to pay off that debt. So six years later, they still each owed 15,000 euros for a spliff they smoked when they were 11. So that's how the, the I suppose, the criminal gangs, the, the individuals are, are bringing young people in. They're identifying the vulnerability, they're preying upon it, and they're exploiting it. And that's the, that's the piece we don't see. As you said, the headlines will always focus on the, the behaviours. And I suppose what can be very, very difficult is, is to look at a 17-year-old and think of them as being vulnerable, mm-hmm. as, as to think of them as being a child. So as you said, 11, 12-year-old, and again, Anne, that came up at that event mm-hmm. we were at where up to maybe 12, 13, that they were seen as children. After that, it was getting harder and harder and harder for the system, and especially the, the justice system, to see them as children and to view them as, as children, as opposed to just, as you said, young offenders, cogs. Uh, I was reading a piece recently, and again, like they were challenging the use of the word feral, when really what they what they said, well, what you mean by that is children who have been neglected or children who mm-hmm. are who who aren't being looked after, who are who are vulnerable by by definition. Um but it absolutely it, and Suzanne just on that before we move on, I think it came to I suppose it, it 
came to be very visible around language and the language that we use and the damage it can do there, I think it was 2021. And it was looking at a young girl who was living in state care, who was 15 years of age, who had, whose vulnerability had been identified and she was preyed upon. And she was actually moved around a hotel network in Dublin for the purpose of sexual exploitation. And I think, you know, we all we all take the lead of media in terms of forming our language. And that young girl's experience was portrayed in the media horrifically. The a headline appeared, it was in the Irish Times and it was in the Independent one afternoon at the same time. And the, or the headline on that article, Suzanne, was 15-year-old girl poked off her head in Dublin Hotel. The 15-year-old girl had been moved around a network of hotels for sexual exploitation and had only come into contact with a caregiver when she was so brutally raped that she had to be taken to a hospital. But that's how the media portrayed it. They looked at her presenting behaviour. She had been given cocaine, she had been given alcohol to, to subdue her so that it was easier to, to exploit her. But that's what the media focused on, her presenting behaviour. Horrific. It comes back to something, I suppose, that had been reiterated in this space, which is that a child can never consent to their own exploitation or be held accountable for it. So is that, in a way, why children are, are being targeted, as in a 12 or 13-year-old who's going to be found in possession of drugs isn't going to end up getting the same judicial sentence as an 18 or a 19-year-old? Is that... Is that why they're actually targeting these young people? Well, it is because, uh, you know, um, a child, a young a young child like that can't be criminally prosecuted. Mm. They don't, they're not at the age of criminal responsibility. So, yeah, I mean, that is one of the reasons why they are targeted in the first place. Um, but I suppose just getting back to the importance of language and the reason why uh, I suppose we do what we do in MacPats, it's all about shifting the lens and looking at these children through the lens of child trafficking, because the whole definition that we use, which comes from a definition that's been internationally recognized since the year 2000, it's commonly referred to as the Palermo Protocol, that states in very clear terms what the definition is. And just to repeat, it is the recruitment, transport, transfer, harboring or receipt of a child for some type of exploitation. That particular definition has been incorporated into Irish domestic law. When we use that correct lens of child trafficking to look at these children, like JP mentioned earlier, we're focusing on the vulnerability. We're focusing on the victimhood of that child and the exploitation that they're encountering. And a child can never consent to their own exploitation, even if they're aware of what's going on, even if the activity, such as sexual activity, appears to be consensual. A child cannot legally consent to that curious then about maybe the, the difference about you know children being involved of, in crime yeah trafficking is a very specific thing isn't it so uh, a, a young person i suppose we've seen a couple of headlines recently of young people under the age of 18 involved maybe in uh, violent assaults or violent muggings that's not trafficking unless that was an intimidation piece maybe linked with if so if, if, it, if an adult had requested that, OK, this particular person is causing us a bother in the community, you know, you now need to go sort them out. That would be trafficking. But somebody just taking a bagari and picking on somebody out of random, that's that's straightforward assault. 
Yeah, and, and we're not, I suppose, Suzanne, minimizing or excusing any inappropriate or bad behaviors. Yeah. But for trafficking to be actualized or realized as, as being present or having taken place, there needs to be a benefit. Okay. There needs to be a benefit to somebody. And that benefit needs to be either financial, political, or social. So we're, we're I suppose, we're not talking about um, bad behaviors. Mm -hmm. We're talking about a benefit that, okay. that needs to exist. So that's the, that's the exploitation piece, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Okay, yeah. that's grand. Yeah, yeah. So it's just, it is, it is, it's trying to shift the entirety of one's thinking about trafficking to within this new new lens of, of sort of that child grooming for exploitation, because it isn't, this isn't the language that we generally tend to use when we look at a lot of youth crime, say, for argument's sake. And it's just to try and, I suppose, clarify for my thinking what exactly mm -hmm. it is that we're talking about. Absolutely. And, you know, Suzanne, I suppose Anne and I have been working together for seven and a half, nearly eight years. And we're almost in a space now in 2023 where there's there's an enormous shift around the use of that language. And we find ourselves almost, I suppose, relieved that that language is shifting because for quite a long time, it remained very focused again on the other, mm -hmm. on the movement inwards and the other, I suppose, national communities being at the heart of this type of exploitation so we're we're all moving together i suppose suzanne in terms of shifting the language and learning what the language really means and most importantly using the language when we talk about these children that are being exploited well speaking of language that's difficult to get the head around we have something called a national referral mechanism so anybody want to explain before i ask any questions maybe does anybody want to take the yeah so a national referral mechanism is the procedure put in place by um, states and that it is used to, number one, identify victims of trafficking and number two, to ensure that the victims of trafficking get the necessary supports. Mm -hmm. So Ireland has had a national referral mechanism in place for many, many years. It has been routinely criticized by external bodies and reports because the Gardaí are at the center of that identification system. Now the guards themselves would say that this is not ideal because it's hard for them to, they would rather a sterile um, corridor for the investigation um, procedures rather than the, the investigation and the identification. So there are frontline services and organizations who work with um, potential victims of trafficking, and they're much, much better placed to identify uh, potential victims. So thankfully, there, um, there is progress being made and the national referral mechanism is going to be put on a legislative basis. It's going to come in under the Sexual Offences Act of 2017 and hopefully this will be implemented by the end of the year, but it's going to see the national referral mechanism be diverted away from Angartha Síochána as the sole identifiers and it's going to include other statutory bodies such as TUSLA, the HSC, the Workplace Relations Commission, and the Departments of Children and um, Social Protection, etc., all with the formal um, responsibility for identifying potential victims of trafficking in this country. That's what I have as in the an IREC recommendation, all right, which is that the Commission emphasizes 
the importance of a child-specific identification procedure within that new mechanism. So that'll be really, really important. I mean, what would you like to see? I mean, currently, if a child is, we'll say, we'll, we'll take the criminal, the young person maybe who lives at home with family, is an Irish national and is identified as a victim of trafficking, has been groomed for crime. What happens to that person, JP, when, say, when they're maybe they're picked up by the guards and the guards, you know, look at it through the trafficking lens as opposed to the young offender lens and actually says, okay, this 14-year-old boy who we've caught is a victim of trafficking. What happens to him? Okay, so ideally, I suppose, Suzanne, just to go back on... You mentioned IREC's recommendation mm -hmm. for the child-centric or specific national referral mechanism. And that recommendation, I suppose, was made on, on the basis of consultation with ourselves and a number of other agencies, including the Ombudsman for Children, the Children's Rights Alliance. And whilst IREC made that recommendation and we echoed it and we lobbied for it, the decision was taken not to have a child-specific NRM. The children would be, excuse the phrase, shoehorned into an adult service. Um, We've already seen that, how, how, how successful that is in other areas. Yes, okay. Absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> Great learning there for somebody, Suzanne. Ah. Just um, but anyway, um, I suppose ideally what would happen when that young person is identified or spotted by, by the guards um, and taken into, I suppose, the national referral mechanism, they would be placed in the care of Tusla. And so Tusla have responsibility for providing care for that young person. They're also provided with education. They're provided or supposed to be provided with counselling or psychosocial supports. Um, and they're provided with legal aid as well. Now, when we, I suppose, look at that particular suite of services and look at the number of young people who've been fortunate enough to be able to avail of them over the past three years, we've only seen five children um, being entered into the national referral mechanism, I suppose, in a sense. You know, the, the numbers that are being entered into the to the national referral mechanism are not reflective of the reality, but we lack the, I suppose, the training and the frontline services to adequately identify the children to bring them into to that. So the supports that are there are, I suppose, the most basic supports that we can offer to somebody. They're not specifically child-centric, um, but they do offer, I suppose, an escape of sorts for that child from the world of trafficking. That's what I'm really conscious about is that that child is being removed from what they see and what they feel as their supportive family structures and their communities. And that's a difficult space to be in. So the state is making a decision to say, well, actually, your family isn't the best place for you to be because, you know, as Anne was saying, like if the familiar, you know, a lot of it is familial connections with the gangs that are running this. So as you said, if, if the person who gives you the split to spoke at 11 or 12 is your, your uncle or your your mm -hmm. elder brother or your elder brother's pal, I mean, I'm, I'm just conscious that to, to come out of your community is very difficult for anybody. You know what I mean? To, to, to have to willingly remove yourself from everything you know is a huge ask. It is a huge ask, Susanna. And I think it needs to involve a self-identification piece as well. Mm -hmm. You know, it's all well and good for agencies like Tusla or the guards to say right there's something not right here for you we're taking you out we're putting you into care but there needs to be, be a piece of work done with the child to bring them along on the journey as well and um, to bring them to a point in time where they realize that 
actually that environment wasn't right. Yeah. I was yeah. being exploited um, and that the road ahead is much better for me. But just transplanting mm. the child mm. is not the solution. No. That that doesn't work with the, the underpinning trauma and the, the perceived victimhood or the, the extent of the exploitation. Mm. I suppose a challenge for me, Suzanne, and it is just maybe for me, is that, you know, we, we spoke at the beginning about the age of the child and it's that young person up to the age of 17 and 364 days. But at times it feels like the state is holding these children until they age out and they fall into somebody else's remit of responsibility. And unfortunately for those young people that are caught in worlds of criminality, yes, you may be a victim of exploitation and trafficking up to the age of 17 and 364 days. But the minute you step over that threshold, you become yeah. an adult, you become an offender, and you're picked up for that, that offence. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done, Suzanne, and it's the, I suppose it's the lack of coordinated conversations mm-hmm. that we struggle with. And, um, you know, we talk about justice all the time, and we talk about Department of Justice, we talk about legislation, and we talk about statutory responsibilities. But really what needs to happen here when we talk about children is for our minister or Department of Justice to sit down with the Department of Children and say, right, how can we work together to help those children who will fall into either of our remits at some stage during their young lives? And that doesn't happen. It's just a failing. Yeah, because that's what I think, like, for that young person, I mean, a fish doesn't know it's swimming in the ocean. For that young person, this is normality. This is how there's family operates this is how their family creates an income this is how they earn an income I mean there's a a headline caught my eye on the independent from Tuesday unexplained wealth in communities needs to be examined amid concern over 20 million cocaine seizure so uh, two cocaine seizures at a port one local councillor is calling them for investigations into unexplained wealth of certain members of the community so you can see how like there's a socioeconomic class aspect to this as well, isn't there really? Like this is this is a way of making quick, easy money as a young person, which who doesn't want that? I mean, we all like nice things, but most of us like nice things, we like new things, we're being told that how we dress outwardly is is how we're perceived by society. So again, it's a difficult to, to try and I'm kind of thinking, you know, even if we move our language and we move how we view this to tackle the root causes, like the root causes of this is is poverty and disadvantage. Or am I being, is that is that too broad a brushstroke? Somebody's making money out of poor, disadvantaged young people. I think that's exactly what it is. And I think that um, can, can sometimes be the common denominator, the economic deprivation, poverty, um, but there's a whole list of reasons as to why children become vulnerable or or are exploited and trafficked. Um, And that includes their exposure to the internet, um, unsupervised um, use on the internet. We know that that's an area that is just exploding in terms of online sexual exploitation of children. Um, It's children who might be in state care at the time. I know that there was, um, or you might have seen the report, the piece of academic research scoping study that came out of UCD recently, and it looked into the issue of children who are currently in the care of the state who are being targeted by groups of men um, for the purpose of sexual exploitation. Um, so, 
you know, it's it, it's hard to, I think, generalize and say, well, you know, poverty, economic deprivation is the root cause of everything. It certainly has a huge part to play, but it's by no means the whole picture. And, and we have a saying that, you know, we repeat often, and that is anybody can be a victim of trafficking. And likewise, anybody can be a perpetrator or a trafficker. And so when we're looking at that, we see that all children are vulnerable to the crime of trafficking. We also consider, Suzanne, you know, just that, I suppose, and it's not unique, it's something that everybody, every single individual has, is that, I suppose, innate need to be seen, to be identified. And I'm thinking of social media in particular, you know, I heard an interview many years ago with one of the three founders of Facebook, and they were talking about, you know, the the structure of it and it's I suppose it's draw and it's it's popularity and they said that the the like button on Facebook was introduced to get people hooked because everybody needs to be liked mm-hmm. and when you look at young children especially if they're maybe isolated in some way be it emotionally or financially um, or any other way if somebody spots them and somebody shows them attention and somebody brings them in and gives them what they need of course they'll respond, of course they'll be brought in, and of course they'll do whatever they, they need to do to hold on to that. So that that vulnerability is, is certainly being exploited here as well. There was one thing that, uh, JP, you had said at uh, something else that you had done that I was watching, that the supports that are offered were linked with a willingness to engage with the prosecution system. Do I have that correct? So that's specifically, yes, you do. And I think it probably recently came up specifically in relation to the introduction of Fagan's Law. Yes. Um, a piece of legislation that criminalises adults who have been proven to groom children for, for criminality. And that prosecution of those adults relies on the young person giving testimony. So the state requires an already exploited, vulnerable child to come forward to assist the state in securing a prosecution. Um, I think if we were to to pick that apart and look at what we're actually doing to those children, it's horrific, absolutely horrific to think that a child of seven, eight years of age needs needs to assist the state to be able to prove that a crime has taken place. Like all of the stats and all of the bits and pieces I've pulled out from different reports, they do still seem to come back to the same thing all of the time, which is, you know, that the presumed victims primarily come from Africa, 36 from the EEA, which is European Economic Area, 11% from Asia. Children only accounted for 9% of the victims. So the more I kind of pulled out and the more I looked at, and again, the year 2021, so only one Irish traffic victim traffic for the purposes of sexual exploitation. That the language when you read, because that's what I've been doing. I've been reading these reports and thinking this is a problem for other people brought on by other people. And and that's why I got, I'm I'm just trying to learn and expand my own thinking about this, because all of the language seems to go back to that all of the time. And I think Suzanne, that is a stark reflection of. What happens when there is confusion around what child trafficking is and there's ambiguity and so what you have in those statistics is the focus on non-irish nationals and if you're not looking for a potential child victim of trafficking amongst the irish population or eu um, children living here you're not necessarily going to see them you're not going to identify if you think it's all about 
children being moved into Ireland from other countries, you're just going to focus on that cohort of children. Um, and that just brings up the other fact. And even if you do focus on that cohort of children, the amount of unaccompanied minors who have come to Ireland seeking inter international protection, who have gone missing from the care of the state, is horrific, and the numbers have been as high as seventy six um, in 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 the last eighteen months. Seventy six children gone missing from the care of the state. So it just shows you, even when we're looking, you know, we have to look at the whole picture. But even even if we're looking at just um, unaccompanied minors coming in or children being trafficked into this country, we're still not seeing the whole picture. I pulled out the program for government from twenty twenty. And in that, it says, uh, makes a commitment to enact legislation that encompasses both UN and EU measures and protocols to combat the smuggling and trafficking of migrants. And then the other thing, the only other way it comes up with trafficking is to adopt and implement a comprehensive strategy to combat trafficking of women and girls. So again, when I read that, that's telling me what I thought I already knew. Yeah, and look, Suzanne, we have this problem. I mean, unfortunately, we only have to look to a statement that Taoiseach made only a few weeks ago. He was asked, he was on a trip to the US and he was asked by the US media there um, what Ireland's response is to the tra human trafficking problem. And his response was that Ireland doesn't have a great issue with human trafficking because we're in a small island and it makes it very difficult for the boats to get here with the people. Completely conflating it hasn't the understanding of trafficking and he's our Taoiseach. So if we're looking at it from that aspect, you kind of think even if people at the at the political level within our government who are supposed to know and um, who are supposed to be all over the legislation and over the and if they don't have the understanding, what hopes then do the general public have of understanding this issue? Like I, I think as well, in addition to, to what Anna said there, you know, with the Taoiseach statement, and it was very concerning to hear it, you know, when, when I suppose as an Irish nationalist, maybe a citizen working in the area and you feel that somebody like that, your Taoiseach is going abroad to represent you and to represent those victims who haven't been found, those children, and is misinformed and miscommunicates to, I suppose, an audience like that. And considering that Ireland had spent two years on a watch list formulated by the US State Department. So he's standing in a room talking to to people who have been watching Ireland for two years because of our deficiencies in responding. It was, I suppose, not alone concerning, it was embarrassing Suzanne, mm -hmm. to hear somebody at that level speak on behalf of communities making every effort to counter trafficking and, I suppose, in essence, disregarding the efforts by not being informed. And I think another significant failing, um, just to carry on from that point, is that we have incredibly low levels of identification of victims of trafficking in this country um, and they don't represent the reality of what's happening on the ground specifically when it comes to the identification of child victims and I think to our great embarrassment um, we it has been revealed um, recently that Irish national children are showing up in national referral mechanisms in other jurisdictions so other jurisdictions are identifying child victims of trafficking. And yet we we happily say, well, we don't have a, a really a, a big deal. We don't have a big problem with child trafficking because the numbers are so low. And if you even put our numbers of identification of child victims alongside the likes of Western and Southern Europe, 
40% of all victims are children. When we look at the United Kingdom, 44% of victims are children. Northern Ireland, 16%. And then we look at ourselves and we've identified five children over the past three years. I mean, it's outlanded. And we share a, and we share a soft border with yeah. Northern Ireland. Just being at a Sustainable Development Goal conference and the, the key two key themes that kept cropping up were data and disaggregated data. So if you're going to leave nobody behind, getting 97% of something isn't actually achieving your goal. Who are the 3%? So they're the people who usually are falling through the gaps. And then the second key thing was resourcing and financing. So that might be my question maybe is, I'll start with you, JP, because I know you're under time pressure. What what needs to happen next? What would you like to see what happen next? Maybe to look at a wider picture, Suzanne, I think, you know, people, maybe some of your listeners will be thinking, you know, we need to to put more resourcing into this area. We need to, to apply more funding to it. We need to, to have a look at budgets. I really don't think it starts with budgets. Then I don't think it starts with the money. I think it starts with an openness to conversation, an openness to, to accepting that there is a challenge out there. Um, you know, we certainly have the history in the state of scurrying past incidents that make us uncomfortable, skirting around conversations that, that rattle us a little bit. But let's keep in mind that we're talking about children. We've all been children and we've all relied on somebody to keep us safe as children. For those children out there that don't have that person, I think we have a responsibility as adults in the state to, to step up and be that person, to have the uncomfortable conversation, be it with a friend, a colleague or with our local government representative and to call out what the challenge is. Children are being exploited in Ireland again. And it's time to have the conversation. So that's what I would like. So that it's most basic form, a conversation right. amongst our wider community and recognition that there are children being exploited in Ireland today as they were 20, 30, 40 years ago. But now is the time to actually do something about it. And what would you like to see happen? Following up from JP's point there, I would like to see a recognition of the language around the understanding around child trafficking, child sex sexual exploitation actually being incorporated into the likes of the Children's First guidelines. Because right now, child trafficking, child sexual exploitation are not seen as a form of child abuse, um, and, and they very much are. So if that was incorporated into that policy level, that, that, that legal um, framework, then it would I think, make it um, mandatory for all mandated people and then also general public to be able to, OK, firstly, recognize it and then know how to report it. So I think we have to come from both levels so that the overarching policy legal level, but also then to continue with the awareness raising at um, grassroots level. And I think, you know, it's a little bit like the issue of when I've heard many people make the um, the same point about the similarity between the likes of uh, child trafficking and human trafficking and domestics and um, domestic abuse, you know, 20 years ago, people knew that domestic violence was taking place inside of homes and people were 
you know, turning a blind eye and nobody really wanted to touch that because, and it's a little bit like, you know, it took so many years for that conversation to come to the fore and for people to actually speak out out about it and to be comfortable speaking about it and acknowledging that it, it exists. And I think it's the same with human trafficking and child trafficking. There has been a reluctance to speak about it, but I do think that as JP said earlier, there is momentum, there is a shift and um, it's something that we're very grateful to see, but this conversation needs to be had and it needs to be opened up at um, all levels. If mm. you're trying to help young people transition into adulthood mm. and remove them from this, mm. but that's I think that's to me that's the challenge is that if this is all everybody you know does, being able to support these young people into moving into different worlds. Yeah, and I think, Suzanne, for... For young people, I suppose my mind is often shifted back to the, I suppose, another podcast. And it was the, the podcast that was conducted with the youngest person ever to be put into witness protection in Ireland. And the podcast is called The Witness. And I think it would be immensely powerful for young people who are living or caught in lives like that to hear an Irish voice who walked the streets before them detailing what happened to him, how he was brought into worlds of exploitation and criminality just by being. He was a young lad that got a part-time job. That's the only mistake yeah. he made. He got a part-time job and he was exploited by an adult. So I think for young people to, I suppose, to revisit that education piece and to, to put aside the armour of, you know, big lads on the street and realise that anybody like Ansett can be a victim Mm. Um, and to, to educate young people to, to, to self-identify and see the signposts other than lives of criminality. There are other ways out. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you have any ideas for future conversations, anything you'd like us to discuss, please email us at secretary at socialjustice.ie with your thoughts and ideas. Until next time, stay safe.